welcome back to another episode of Rose Buzz. I am Seema, a PhD candidate in the Department of City and Regional Planning and a graduate resident fellow at South Baker. And I'm Sam. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Literatures and English, uh, and I'm the graduate resident fellow in Menon. So today we are lucky to be in conversation with our two house fellows, Angela Cornell and Mary Opperman. Welcome. We will let them quickly introduce themselves and then get started with you. So Angela, do you want to start us off? Sure, sure. Um, so I am uh, a clinical professor at the law school, and I've been on the faculty since 2005. In addition to founding and directing the labor law clinic, I also teach uh, labor law and uh, some related courses from time to time, including business and human rights, uh, my scholarship and my teaching focuses on both domestic and international and comparative labor law. And I look forward to interacting with you this evening. So I am the, uh, I've been at Cornell for almost 25 years um, and I am the vice president and chief human resource officer at Cornell. So I, I don't have any areas of study or terrific things like Angela does. I, I just make sure that the people who work here have benefits and get paid. Uh, Mary, what would you say was the most transformative educational experience that sparked your interest in human resources? How does it continue to impact you today? And can you talk us about that journey from being a student to now a vice president for how human resources now? So Seema, I, um, my degree is actually in political science because I expected to go on to law school, um, but, uh, forces had a different um, a different plan for me. So what what I would say is I learned the how much I enjoyed working with people and sort of understanding um, their dynamics when I was a bartender. So um, I if if any of you have frequented a, um, a bar um, where you sit actually at the bar, you have seen people at the bar who see the bartender as a sort of safe place to say all sorts of interesting and remarkable things. And um, so it was really from that experience, so I was still in college at the time, but it was really from that experience that I realized that I had an interest in a bit of a knack in human dynamics. And so when for a number of personal reasons, uh, law school had to wait. Um, I took an, an entry level job in a in a small um, in a small consulting firm, and that led me on the pathway. Great. Um, so my 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 question is for Angela, and so um, I was wondering if along similar lines, Angela, you could tell us a little bit about your own educational trajectory. I would say that. I had a plan to, I sort of identified law school uh, while I was in college and um, I was motivated to go to law school because I uh, had a commitment to, uh, to work towards social justice. Um, and so I, I thought and saw law school uh, as a means of, for you know, working towards uh, the things that I thought um, could be improved in our society, um, and so um, that that was that was my motivation. 
it, it wasn't as if when I was a child, I thought this is the path for me. Sometimes um, that is the case with people. You know, they, they as a, a young child, they, you know, they've thought, oh, I, I want to be a lawyer, I want to be a doctor, or I want to be a teacher. Um, but, uh, but for me, that came in college as I was trying to sort out what I was going to do with my life. Um, Mary, I, in my attempt to know more about you in preparation for this interview, I see you also work on numerous boards of local and national organizations. Can you please talk a little about those diverse engagements of yours? And what are some of the challenges that you face in managing such a diverse board? portfolio? Um, so I, as I said, I've been, I never expected to stay at Cornell as long as I did. Um, I, I came here from Harvard where I had been in human resources and my plan was to stay a few years in the top seat and then return to the Boston area. But communities like Ithaca have a way of kind of drawing you in and making you uh, I used to say it's like a Hoover vacuum cleaner this sucking sound. And before you know it, you are invested in the community. And one of the things I realized early on was that I really wanted to have an experience beyond just my job at Cornell. And so um, I probably within the first six months that I was uh, here, I um, met with uh, with the person at the time who headed up university relations and said, I'd been on a board um, in Massachusetts that assisted people with disabilities in getting jobs. And did he know of any place I might be able to volunteer? And at the time, the um, there was a board seat open at Challenge Industries. And Challenge is a... Um, began actually as a sheltered workshop. So back in the day um, when you had particularly serious um, or profound disabilities, rather than integrating you into workplaces, there was a, um, a concept that you would work right in a, what they called a sheltered workshop. And I came on to the, um, to the board right as sheltered workshops were ending and mainstream employment was beginning. And so it was a fascinating time. I actually was the board chair when we hired the new person who ran it for a while. Um, and then that just got me started in realizing how much great work happens in our community. And so, um, it, I would always say, I'm not going to do another board. And then a fantastic board would, would call and say, we need somebody with an HR background. And I could never say no. Um, so that's sort of how I got into all of that. So human resources, um, I began in a role that was much more narrow. And then sort of over time, the longer you stay, you sort of collect different things. Um, and so the best advice I ever got was from someone who said, you don't have to be an expert to lead something. You just have to recognize you're not the expert. And that has helped me a great deal. For six years, I oversaw the police and environmental health and safety and emergencies, not areas I knew absolutely nothing about. Now I oversee uh, the equity office and Title IX, as well as economic development. Again, also areas that my background don't really uh, yield towards. So I've taken my primary responsibility is to get good people in those top seats that are experts and then support them as best I can. And it's been a fascinating ride. A diverse portfolio is actually really exciting because 
you always feel like you're kind of a step behind the expert that's telling you something and it keeps you sharp, I think. So I really, I really enjoy that. And the way I stay engaged, the biggest way I stay engaged on the campus um, is that I coach your commencement. So um, it's a great deal of fun. Uh, it hasn't been so much fun the last couple of years, by the way, but it's a great deal of fun with the exception of the weather. Um, so uh, I, it's my way of giving back to the students. It's a, I, to this day, well, not in the last year at least, but when I stand at the, um, at the stadium and I see all of the family and friends there and the students assembled, it makes me so proud and uh, it's one of the, I just love it. So it's a volunteer opportunity that I feel very proud to have. I really wanted to just say that uh, when I think of um, Mary's work uh, with human resources, I just wanted to say it is interesting that sort of human dimension of our work and both of us have a human, a real human dimension work in our work. Um, in, in, in my work with regards to labor and employment law in the clinic that has this enormous human dimension. You know, work is such a critical aspect of, of who, who we are. It's so much more, of course, than, than our paycheck. Um, so it means, you know, that when you work in labor and employment, you work in a field um, that has, um, you know, an enormous, it has enormous depth for people. When they get fired from a job, it is um, so uh, heart-wrenching. In fact, it can even be um, completely devastating, not just for the individual, but for the family. That sort of human dimension of working in the field of labor and employment can be really rewarding. In the same way, I think that it can be rewarding to do that work um, from the human uh, resources perspective. I think there's a lot of really overlap between um, sort of the human dimension and human resources and the human dimension in, in labor and employment law. Um, and I just wanted to set that out before I get too far afield. Um, and then uh, with regard to labor and democracy, uh, the connection. Um, well, my work in that area has been fairly, uh, fairly uh, recent. Uh, and um, of course, um, we're at a very challenging time now um, with, with democracy in the, in the country. Uh, we have experienced uh, considerable uh, backsliding. It's uh, been uh, documented in a number of places. Of course, we've experienced it ourselves, uh, the polarization in our country and the way in which it uh, destabilizes um, it destabilizes the situation for for all of us. But uh, but the other aspect to that is the way in which um, the economy uh, can uh, impact um, democracy, uh, the level of poverty in the U.S. Um, and um, well, of course, right now on unemployment. Um, those are uh, aspects. Um, of our society that um, that sort of weaken um, the stability of, of the country and uh, labor law, uh, labor law and policy um, is a tool for um, for strengthening those aspects. Right, labor law can um, through labor law you can increase um, 
the strength of the middle class. You can increase the ability of workers to have a greater voice in the workplace. Uh, you can, and when we had a stronger middle class, we in fact had a stronger a stronger democracy. When you have inequality of this uh, magnitude, where um, where the rich are compiling so much wealth, and uh, and and in fact the rest of the society is sort of stagnating and struggling, uh, that is destabilizing. And I think uh, labor law is labor law, uh, both uh, law and practice and policy. Uh, is one of the many tools uh, we can use to to strengthen the middle class and ultimately to create a fairer and more just uh, society. I, I couldn't agree with you um, more on all accounts. And I was wondering, you know, you have uh, such a broad scope to to look at uh, social justice and the and the the dignity of work and the importance of the work having. Um, being regarded with dignity. I've often said that the, the you know, we spend so much time at work. Um, it's, the, it's such an element of who we are and how we see ourselves. As you look at a place like a university, it doesn't just have to be Cornell, just at a university. How do you think about the, you know, staff? What advice might you give somebody in my role? <laughs> oh, that is such a tough one for somebody who has, has, you know, sort of, you know, decades of experience. I don't know whether I have advice, but um, but I, what I would say is simply that, of course, um, when I came from private practice to the university, I found it to be a very hierarchical place, more so than what I had expected um, from my professional career. Um, but, uh, but the truth is that I have found that if you work hard in this institution and you, you know, you, you, you know, you try to make a difference and you try to contribute meaningfully, there are enormous possibilities for really everyone at the institution. There are so many exceptionally rich opportunities for everyone. So do I wish that sometimes, you know, it were, you know, that, you know, that it, that, that things, you know, it was a little less hierarchical? Yes, uh, I do. But, but the truth is that the, the longer I'm here, the more I realize that, um, you know, the institution will provide enormous opportunities if you're willing to you know, work hard and um, and focus on trying to contribute in the ways that you can. Um, and so, um, I don't have a PhD. I just have uh, my my JD, and that has not um, that, for example, hasn't uh, been an impediment uh, to being able to uh, contribute uh, in meaningful ways. And so, I do feel like. Um, um, I think there are enormous opportunities, and there um, there are opportunities for a wide range of individuals in our community to to have a meaningful work life and to be able to contribute uh, in a uh, in a in a very real real way. So I don't. That's not necessarily advice, uh, but. Those are um, some thoughts about about the institution. Thank you. It actually was good, really good advice. I mean, I do think that the more we see ourselves as a community, 
um, the more we tend to see the sometimes unseen work that gets done to make the place uh, run and to support the students and the faculty. So that was great. Thank you. Mary, you mentioned that you have also worked at Harvard and then you did your master's here at Cornell and you've spent a lot of time at Cornell as well. So based on your experience, what are some of the differences that you observe, you know, working at these two Ivy institutions? Yep. So I'll take this not from a, uh, not from a learning or student perspective, but just my experience in the, in the HR field, the geography has an enormous part to play. So in, in, Harvard, at Harvard, if you didn't want to work at Harvard, you didn't, you, you could find other opportunities within your commuting distance and stay in the area. Here at Cornell, once, if you want a new opportunity and it isn't at Cornell, it essentially means for most people, not everybody, but many people that you have to move away. And that difference, that the nugget of that difference changes the culture of the environment. And I, I would say that that to me is the single biggest difference. It, it, it changes the complexion of the workforce. It changes the expectations people have for their employer. Um, if your employer is the end all and be all of your decision to reside in the area, then you look, you have only one place to look to get your needs met. But when you're in a big city, if your needs aren't met by that employer, you have five others that you can go to. And so I would say that's probably the core of the difference. Then in relation to equity, diversity, and inclusion in the workplace, what are some of your challenges, some of the key challenges at Cornell that you face in daily life? Yeah, so actually, that's a great question when we were just talking about. So there's elements of diversity um, that also have to do with geography. This is not a particularly diverse um, area of the country, but I will say neither was Boston. And, um, and so that definitely has an element. But I'll, I have also noticed and um, that now that talent is moving around more, and that's something I think we're gonna continue to see, the university doesn't have the shortcut to be able to pin somebody down. We have to be way more assertive about knowing what people want, trying to give them those opportunities. We have to be very intentional about our career growth plans for everyone in order to be able to retain um, top talent, which is by um, demographics more and more and more diverse. So Angela, um, in your last response, uh, you had mentioned sort of this idea of, of uh, making a difference within the Cornell community. And, and even before that, you had talked about how you uh, developed and, and direct the, the labor law clinic here at Cornell. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what led you to develop the clinic and what you see as its function. Well, as a labor law clinic, uh, we represent uh, clients um, with um, a range of labor and employment issues. And I developed the clinic because I think it's a very effective way of teaching students um, the law, uh, because when you have a case in front of you and you have to sort through the issues, uh, you can deepen your understanding of the material. Uh, this kind of experiential learning 
is particularly effective. And the combining this with being able to provide a service to those individuals who might not otherwise have legal representation is a very um, powerful and meaningful um, experience. Um, we focus quite a bit on collective rights, which are uh, workers' uh, rights when they get together with other workers, because I think those are some of the most powerful. Um, so uh, we do some work with unions and worker centers and other kinds of collective rights, even if it's not a union, it could be workers that get together in their workplace to let's say improve workplace health and safety. Um, uh, you know, sometimes we hear about workers that walk off the job in, during the COVID period. We've heard of workers who have walked off the job because it's just not safe to go to work. Uh, the kinds of claims that those workers would have if they, if they experience retribution for their collective activity, we like uh, to take those kinds of claims, claims that are grounded in freedom of association. Uh, we think we can have a, a more, uh, more of an impact with these collective claims. And so that's what we focus on. And it's very meaningful for students to, um, to assist, um, as I was talking about before, uh, with labor and employment, um, you know, we, um, when a worker is, is fired from uh, his or her job, it can be um, really just devastating, um, not just financially, but all the way around. And so, um, you know, uh, my students um, have um, been able to, um, you know, find uh, redress through the legal tools for many uh, workers um, in our community and, uh, and beyond. We do both domestic work and we do international work. Um, and some of our cases involve a race and national origin. We get uh, actually a fair number of cases involving workers of color. And race discrimination, unfortunately, is, um, is very real, even in our community. And so um, those cases are particularly powerful uh, for students. So for example, one case, and I don't wanna take a lot of time, but one case involved an African-American worker who closed his eyes at the end of his 12-hour shift uh, and was fired. Well, uh, we, uh, when we got into the case, uh, we realized that a lot of the white workers at the plant were given numerous warnings, but he was fired the very first time he closed his eyes. He was not asleep, but he had closed his eyes. There was no damage to the facility or anything, um, but, uh, but he was treated so much more harshly than the, um, than the white workers. And it was so powerful for students to be able to get that worker back to work. He was reinstated to his job and was given back pay. And that was really um, a powerful experience. It can be rewarding. Once again, Mary, to you. In 2015, Human Resource Executive Magazine recognized you as one of the top 15 most influential women leaders in human resources. What did this award mean to you? And if I can ask this, was there a pre or post award paradigm shift in how you approach what you do? So 2015 was a really interesting year. It began with, with two things. Uh, I had no idea that was coming. And no, I actually still don't know where that came from. Um, and, uh, and I also was inducted into the National Academy um, of Human Resources, both, both in the same year. 
Um, in that same year, the president I had worked for for nine years um, and who had expanded my portfolio quite a bit left uh, to take another role. And uh, that really um, changed uh, my relationship at the, uh, with the president. And eventually a new president came in. It didn't really shift my paradigm because they were symbols. So I guess what I, I guess what I would say is I I do I I have a really deeply held belief that work is a part of our core and an element of our dignity and that everyone has um, should have the opportunity to work in a job where they feel that they belong and they thrive and that drives me more than anything else. Um, it's easier in some organizations where that belief system cascades down the whole culture of the organization. It's harder in some places that are more decentralized and diffuse. Um, but what drives me is today is what drove me many years ago, which is that I truly and honestly believe that the fundamental right to work um, is core to who we are as human beings, and that um, being in an organization where you can thrive means belonging to that organization and feeling safe in taking risks and making mistakes. Um, and I think that um, what has been much more profound for me is the, the, I guess, my ongoing education in the area of social justice that what I've learned of late is that you can have that belief and you can have structures, but if you don't really look at the inside of those structures, you don't know uh, the extent to which the systems have, are oppressive and have um, a, a different impact on marginalized populations than they do on majority populations. And I would say that's probably been my biggest learning in the last few years, that you, you can have great programs, but if you haven't dug in and really analyzed your systems, it's likely that they are leaving people out. I so have appreciated Marin's comment regarding dignity at work, because many of the struggles that we're involved in, in the labor law clinic, are ultimately not issues of pay or something like that, but really come down to workers who don't feel like they have any dignity in their work. And so um, it is a critical uh, it is a critical thing for any for any job. I remember uh, Dr. King saying that all work has dignity. Um, but, um, so with COVID, um, you know, what really COVID has, has driven home, um, to me, uh, is how challenging, um, it can be for workers in the U.S., um, because of, uh, serious, uh, I mean, what we were confronted with, of course, is, is, you know, serious workplace health and safety issues, um, and, um, and the realization that many of these workers, if you're laid off from your job, you don't have health insurance. And having that health insurance tied meant that the repercussions of the layoff was much more dramatic in the U.S. than in many other industrialized countries. Because workers not only lost their jobs, they lost their health insurance. Um, 
and uh, we have um, so many uh, fragmented kinds of jobs that many workers um, had no um, nothing to uh, nothing to rely on during this hard period they, because they lived paycheck paycheck to paycheck. So um, so the situation has been extraordinarily difficult. We um, had some cases of workers who were trying to get, uh, like uh, we had one a worker who uh, had been at a facility in the area for 10 years and lost his job. He was fired because he was trying to encourage his coworkers to wear a mask and practice social distancing because his wife had um, had um, health issues. And so he was, she was particularly vulnerable. So he didn't want to put her at risk. Um, and these were requirements, you know, to have, uh, to wear a mask in the workplace and to practice social distancing. But as a result of that agitation, he was actually fired from his job. Um, so we are, you know, that's a struggle that we continue to have representing him in this case. Um, and and we weren't uh, successful on our first effort, our first legal challenge, and now we're uh, going through um, the state um, uh, for uh, for state action. We were at the federal level, but now we're at the state level trying to get redress for them. So um, so um, there really has been um, you know so much uh, hardship in in the work environment with with, with COVID. Um, but uh, but workplace health and safety is probably what's really come out of this for me is a realization that workplace health and safety is critically important. I really and now I've started adding that component to my classes because uh, I hadn't actually previously taught uh, that material. But it's crucially important. Everybody wants to be in a work environment where they're they're not putting themselves or their loved ones at risk. Um, and so that's been been a struggle um, to try to um, to try to uh, fight for uh, for these issues and to protect those workers that are suffering retaliation as a result of their efforts to try to get uh, a safe work environment. I think the pandemic has uncovered all sorts of issues around what we value as a country and what we do about what we value. So we know that essential workers. Um, didn't have the choices that other workers had to be able to work from home. To keep their jobs, they had to come in. And they had to come in while we were still learning how this virus was transmitted. But we also know that women who um, have had insufficient support for years um, in trying to balance their parenting responsibilities with their work responsibilities. And the, what the pandemic showed was that it was, it's such a tenuous structure of support that it, the pandemic took away what little there was, leaving an, a record number of women now dropping out of the workforce because they can't deal with the with what what they are now left to deal with alone no child care no schooling jobs that require them to be on at a particular time um, so i think the pandemic if we are willing to without defensiveness look at it has really uncovered some of the inequities that need to be addressed and when you combine those 
with the, with the increased awareness of social justice issues for marginalized communities, we can look at it all as what we don't have, or we can look at those um, as, as the framework for a more just um, opportunity for work. Thank you. I really appreciate where this conversation is going. And I just want to follow it up with uh, another question. I'm sure you've had to make certain really difficult, tough questions in relation to staffing, hiring freezers, or other things to keep the campus going. So um, I was wondering what was one of the most important uh, challenge in that sense or decision that you had to make in your position? Well, so I've been through a few downturns and I, and I will say it's a lot more fun to be the head of human resources when you have money and a lot less fun when money dries up. Um, I would say, so the whole beginning of the pandemic, when we were trying to figure out just how much financial trouble we were in, was very stressful. Um, and so for better or worse, and I think this is, it's fair to, um, to ask that question, we made a decision to try to keep as many people employed as we could um, in order to be able to, including, by the way, people that were idle for months and months and months, we, we really didn't have anything for them to do. Um, in order to do that, we, we and meet our obligations in the financial aid uh, side of, of, our, um, of our organization, we had to make some really difficult decisions. We didn't give out any raises. And in fact, we cut the retirement um, contribution from the university for, it turned out to be five months, but when we announced it, we said it could have gone as long as a year. Very unpopular. People did not like that. And, and depending on your age, it it is quite candidly a decision that you might never come back from, from a financial standpoint, because you can't get back what didn't go into your retirement account. Um, so left with those kind of choices where there's just like no good way to go, um, I think was one of the um, hardest things I've ever had to do. And then um, following along with that, making the decision to open in the fall and to bring our workers back, our essential workers back, to bring, um, to kind of restart was a, I didn't know how much longer we were going to be able to be so idle. And I was so worried that we would lose these, we, people would lose their jobs. And, um, and so the decision to come back was one that was very, it was driven by science, but I, I was in support because I felt as though it was the best way to protect those jobs. Sort of a, a similar question uh, for you, Angela. Um, you had mentioned before that you started in private practice and then uh, sort of moved into, into academia. And I'm wondering um, if when you're in private practice, if there was a particular case or, or set of cases that for you was kind of a, a defining moment in, in terms of kind of like crystallizing your interests or, or what you thought you might want to sort of uh, study and, that, and then teach later on? There wasn't one particular case, but, um, but um, the day in, day out experience with people who are struggling uh, with employment issues, uh, you know, did leave its mark. Uh, and so it, it was very rich and rewarding work. And, um, and it, at Cornell, um, 
this is really uh, an exceptional place uh, to teach and to study labor and employment law because apart from the courses at the law school, we have um, one of uh, the country and the world's best uh, labor and industrial schools. And so, um, so um, you know, uh, tackling these kinds of issues in this environment is really wonderful because there's so many additional courses for students to take a wide range of both labor and employment, private sector, public sector, specialized niche courses, the Americans with Disabilities Act, a whole Disabilities Institute, so many rich uh, offering. But um, so there wasn't any one course, uh, any one uh, case, but uh, it was really the aggregation of, um, of many different kinds of cases uh, that um, you know, solidified for me that this is really a wonderful and rich area, both to practice and and to teach, but I, I will say that sometimes the lessons can be uh, can be hard lessons. So, for example, I did have a case. I represented a FedEx driver um, who was really who was fired. There's no doubt she was fired because of her sexual orientation. She was doing extraordinarily well. They wanted to promote her to management until she uh, separated from her husband and was seeing a woman and. Uh, her boss uh, knew that that was going on and made all kinds of snide comments, but there was no redress for her because at that time under Title VII, <coughs> under Title VII, sexual orientation wasn't, uh, there was no um, ability to sue. Now, we did bring a lawsuit based on her gender, but the real claim was uh, tied to her sexual orientation. And in the state that I was in, there was no protection, which means you could lose your job just because of who you loved and who you were in a relationship. I mean, that is a really, it leaves you with this um, sort of um, this hard lesson that uh, sometimes the legal system uh, doesn't work the way the way it should. Uh, things are changing now, and they've changed quite a bit from that case. But I have to say that that case did leave this this sort of this this strong feeling that we have to we have to do more um, to right the wrongs in in the workplace um, and improve the laws for uh, for workers and improve these injustices that are really intolerable in this day and age. This this is a very enriching conversation. I would want to kind of open it to students if they might have questions. Yes, um, I had a question um, and this can go for, for both. Um, but so far while uh, working here at Cornell, what's been the best experience uh, you two have had? All right, well, I guess my my best experience um, has been when we have um, in the clinic, when we take a case and students are learning for the first time how to do it and they take it to a hearing um, and they prevail and they are able to find, um, to get redress for the worker who has been fired unjustly and they do it, um, you know, leading the case themselves, uh, arguing the case and drafting the pleadings and doing the post-arbitration brief. And they prevail based on, um, you know, what they've learned in the clinic and their own uh, capacity. That's a beautiful thing for me to sort of see that come together. We don't always win, but 
uh, when we have won, it's been incredibly uh, rewarding. So I, I can't tell if this is the pandemic or because it's late after a difficult day, but I'm really struggling to come up with one of these. So I, I, I do think that commencement is a great source of joy, except when it rains, by the way. <laughs> uh, but um, I, I do get a lot of um, satisfaction from that. And um the inaugurations, the big events are these moments. There was, we did this um, event uh, at, uh, I can't, I can't keep things straight, but I think it might've been at an inauguration. We put together this event called a street fair and everyone was out. We had, um, we had food and we, students were there and the staff were there and everyone was around and it was, it was just maybe a few hours, but every department got to bring something they were really proud of. The vet college brought their little teeny pony. And um, it was just this joyous moment where the whole community blended and just had a really good time. So there's a question in the chat. Um, would you be able to speak on leadership and any advice you can give to a student, especially uh, as it also relates to being a woman? So, uh, so I guess I'll just put together some, um, some ideas that probably don't um, stream together all that well. The first one is to know yourself and know from the beginning what brings you joy. Grounding your career in what others expect from you is a, an exhausting and, and over time less satisfactory way than grounding your career in what brings you happiness and fulfillment and joy and balance. Um, as a leader, the, the best advice I can give you as a leader is to lead with compassion and respect and to recognize that you're going to learn the most from the people who are most different from you. So sometimes our inclination is to hire people who have um, an approach very similar to ours because it almost always is an easier interview and we have a tendency to look for that because we're looking to create our leadership team. But your leadership team is much more dynamic and comes up with much better solutions if you bring in people who actually think otherwise, who have different lived experiences than yours, and who are not afraid to speak truth to power. Um, so what that means is that you can't define the, your leadership team um, by harmony. You need to describe at your leadership team's successes by outcomes and mutual regard. I guess so. Leadership in students. Um, and what I what I would say is I I would so endorse what Mary has said about career choices. First of all, that choosing a career that is that, that is meaningful for you, uh, rather than let's say. Um, you know, the career that somebody else wants for you, or rather than being motivated by money, because it's a long haul um, if, if it's exclusively uh, just for, uh, for compensation. Much better to choose a career that you actually find uh, rewarding. Um, and you, you know, happiness is, is the possibility if you, in fact, find, find meaningful work. And that may not be the possibility if you're just trying to get the highest, the highest income. So I encourage you to really find a career that you find uh, to be meaningful. 
far as leadership, um, I mean, I have always been in a career where service was important. When a lawyer, service is everything. Um, and I love that aspect of the law, service, serving, trying to help uh, resolve disputes. And uh, that actually, uh, there are so many components of that also in human resources as well. Um, but, um, you know, I, I think uh, service is important for students, uh, whatever your niche is. Um, Mary talked about kind of the meaningful service that she was uh, involved in. I guess, I think learning by doing is, is key and giving to the community and trying to serve those uh, who are most in need is, is, is really a, a great learning tool. And so I would encourage you to explore that. And there are lots of different ways to find your niche and to give, and to give back. So I'm going to add one I should have said before, but um, when you are, you are all going to graduate with an Ivy degree, you're going to have lots of opportunities. Um, when you go out, you, because you are, you are successful students at an Ivy League institution, you're used to winning. That's what, you know, you have succeeded. And so sometimes what I find is that people are so focused on getting the job that they don't interview back. So leadership, having a leader that, um, that is respectful and, uh, and not oppressive really allows you to, um, to explore different ideas and different things is huge. And so I, I used to have a slide that said, never work for a jerk. Um, but the important thing is to know what that means to you. So my defini definition of a jerk may not have all the same qualities as yours, but know the kind of leadership that engages you and motivates you. And, and look for that in the person that you're going to work for. Because those few first steps of your career, you want to get as much out of every one of those jobs as you possibly can. And you get that. Um, by having a leader that is invested in your success. And if I can add one other little comment, I would say I really encourage all of you. I know, you know, this is, you know, maybe so, you know, pedestrian, but, um, you know, in life, you know, we can focus on the positive or we can focus on the negative. And if you focus on the positive, um, you know, I, I really do think that ultimately you will be more satisfied in your career, in your jobs, in your career, and in your life. I really encourage you to focus on, um, focus on the many positives instead of finding yourself sort of entrenched in, oh, I wish this were better. I wish I were here. Or I wish I were there. Or I wish, you know, something else, you know. My guess is you'll have many gifts and extraordinary opportunities. I hope you, you know, really focus on those positive aspects of those opportunities, which I'm sure you'll all enjoy. I think we're about at the end of our time. Um, so I want to say um, thank you to both Angela and Mary for 
for joining us tonight and for uh, giving really awesome uh, responses to our questions and, and to each other's questions. Um, I feel like I learned a lot uh, personally. So, so thank you so much for being here with us.